I'm less worried about sort of lethal autonomous weapons. And I find what's most scary are intelligent computers that can simulate compassion. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. The Profile is the show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in an association with the UK's leading Christian publication, Premier Christianity magazine. The monthly title features more interviews just like this, as well as all the latest news, reviews and columnists. Plus, there's great new content uploaded daily to our website. To get access wherever you are in the world, head over to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. Joining us on the show today is Dr. John Wyatt. John is Emeritus Professor of Neonatal Pediatrics, Ethics and Perinatology at University College London, and also a Senior Researcher at the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion. He spent 25 years working as a paediatrician, specialising in the care of newborn babies in intensive care. Now retired from frontline duty, John is focusing on the ethical, philosophical and theological issues raised by rapidly advancing technology. Dr. John Wyatt, welcome to the show. Hi, that all sounded a bit of a mouthful, but... (laughs) (laughs) It gives us lots to talk about. But let's start at the beginning, John. On the show, we like to ask all of our guests about their faith journey. So tell us about how you became a Christian. Yes, I was brought up in a a Christian home by um, very... Uh, you know, clearly committed Christian parents um, in up in the north of England, uh, but I I think I always struggled as as an adolescent and uh, about the relevance of, of Christianity. To I was very interested in science uh, and um, I I felt slightly brainwashed by by my parents, and it was it was not really until I left home and went to university that um, for the first time I had a sort of period of to try and, and work out what I really believed and and in particular whether it was possible to to be a Christian and at the same time be really interested in science and technology and research and so on um, and at that time I was studying physics and um, it was quite a struggle over those first few uh, weeks and months, but I do remember uh, one or two very significant occasions when, as I was wrestling and talking to other people and so on, I increasingly became aware of that that Jesus was not just a theoretical idea, a historical figure, but actually was a a living person. And, and there were, it was really at that time that I traced uh, the origins of my when it really Christianity came alive to me. And uh, and then quite soon after that, much to my surprise, there was an increasing conviction that I should change from physics and train to be a doctor. And that part of my calling was to serve Christ as a, as a doctor. And I, I suppose the way I sort of rationalized it was that in the end, what God was most concerned about was people and that medicine was a way of using the science that I was good at for the people that God really cared about. 
Wow, so that must have come at quite left field then. So you're so you're at university studying physics, and presumably you're what a year, two years into your degree. I'm just about a year into the degree, and and I'm went to my tutor, and he was quite appalled. I think when I said that I wanted to change, and it particularly meant that I had to give up a place. I was actually at Oxford University at the time. I'd had to give up a place at Oxford because it wasn't possible to stay on and study and to change to medicine there I'd have to go away and reapply and all the rest so um by a whole series of coincidences and and things which at the time seemed very much to be God's leading uh the possibility opened up to have a a place here in London at St Thomas's University uh, Medical School and um and so I moved to London and started training as a doctor Although I have to say the first few months, I started to wonder, have I just made the most terrible mistake of my life? <laughs> because the comparison between the dreaming spires of Oxford and the sort of grime of South London, <laughs> Lambeth, was was quite painful. <laughs> I can imagine Oxford is a lovely city. I, I'm sure you must have got quite a lot of strange looks from family and friends as well when you tried to explain that God was leading you to London to, to change degrees. Yes, and and looking back, you know, it was it it was quite an extraordinary thing to do in a way. And yet, at the time, you know, I'm one of the I think the lessons which many people have found is that is that when we're a young Christian, it, it almost seems as though God just writes things so clearly. You know, there were so many coincidences and chances and things that happened that it just seemed blindingly obvious that this was the right thing to do. And um, and now looking back, you know, I've often wondered what would have happened if I'd if I'd stayed at Oxford, and and I think my life would have would have gone forward in a very different way. So looking back, I can definitely see God's hand on my life. Mm. And you went on to then work in paediatrics, and you 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 well, you ended up in a very senior role in the end, didn't you? In, in the hospital, tell us a bit about that time and and what what that job was like because it it wasn't without its challenges, was it? Yeah, that's right. So a little bit more in the in the story before getting there is that because I was in London, I started going to All Souls Church in the in the centre of London, and and there I I came under the extraordinary influence of John Stott, who was the rector of All Souls, and at, to begin with, he was just this rather austere, distant figure in the pulpit, and I was this guy sitting on the back row, and, and writing down, you know, because I was very impressed by his sermons and so on. And then to my utter uh, surprise, he uh, I got this message, would you like to come and have a cup of coffee with me in the rectory? And it was a bit like being invited to see the headmaster. And I was terrified thinking of you know, what had I been guilty of, some terrible heresy or something that the headmaster had asked to see me. And to my utter astonishment, um, he wanted to be friends and he said, um, you know, I understand you're studying medicine and how can I pray for you and what books are you reading at the moment? And and um, he built up a friendship which actually lasted for more than 40 years, all the way until he eventually passed away and is just about at the age of 90. And he had a huge influence on my life. That friendship, I think, in many ways transformed um everything that that I was doing and, and and it was really he who confirmed this vision of of trying to be a, a Christian in in the professional world of medicine and um and being 
and engaging. He he was very keen on what he called double listening, that we were called not only to listen to the Bible and uh, to what God was saying in the church and in the Bible, but we also had to listen to what the world's problems, what the world's questions and issues were. And we needed to, to build a bridge between these two worlds. So, so when I then went into uh, and, and studying medicine, initially I, I trained in adult medicine as an intensive care doctor and then as a in general internal medicine. It was only after several years that I then um, started doing some pediatrics. But I remember the first time I went on a pediatric ward round and um, the consultant got down on his hands and knees in order to look at one of the new toys that the children was playing with. And I really thought, I've arrived, this is where I belong. And uh, and then going on to the baby intensive care unit, again, it was just a, a almost like a feeling of coming home that this is where I belonged. And so um, I, I, I did feel very drawn to paediatrics, partly because I love children and, and partly because it was a very rapidly developing area of, of medical research and um, I became fascinated by the, by the problems of ensuring that babies uh, survived, even those who were very small or very sick, and giving them the best chance of survival. I guess a role like that, you're really at the forefront of seeing wonderful things when babies pull through, and uh, you're you're able to revive, you know, a child that looks like they're kind of near death. But then equally, I, I'd imagine you, you've also had to tell parents absolutely terrible news, um, the, the worst news you can ever receive as a parent. So tell me a bit about how you negotiated those really difficult extremes in your role. Yes, that's absolutely right. It, it's an extraordinary um, kind of work where you do go between these most wonderful things about seeing a baby surviving and being clawed back from death and then uh, doing incredibly well, and um, and and you you learn to see how extraordinarily resilient and tough babies are. In fact, physiologically and, and medically speaking, babies are much tougher than adults, and and the sort of things that would kill any of us stone dead, actually, this, this little baby comes back fighting and <laughs> and uh, comes back from the brink. So there were some wonderful things, and one of the extraordinary things is is that we were not only caring for big babies born at full term but some incredibly tiny premature babies including babies right at the limits of viability who literally weighing about a pound in weight and and fitting into the palm of my hand and um i remember one of the well i just started working at the the baby unit and uh, we uh, what, an extremely premature baby at 24 weeks was was being delivered and I was had to go up and be ready there at, to resuscitate this tiny tiny little baby and I remember running down uh, in those days it was it was quite sort of crude this was back in the 19, 1970 uh, not just early 1980s and um, we the resuscitation the place where the baby was born was just one floor above and and I literally ran down the back stairs carrying the baby in my arms and into straight into the incubator where they were all waiting to take this baby and it, the baby literally uh was was cupped in my hands and that baby did remarkably well that was the first tiny baby i'd ever seen and that baby did remarkably well and 16 years later i was there was 
visiting the neonatal unit was this very punky looking young lady with a stud in her nose who'd come who which was that baby and sort of meeting her again and remembering how tiny she was just an extraordinary experience so you know there were wonderful things but also as you say terrible things and um having to tell parents that their baby had severe brain damage or was dying uh, was was really very challenging although i also sort of developed had an instinct that actually caring for dying babies and, and and allowing babies to die well and supporting parents through this whole process actually was something that was incredibly important and and that we shouldn't see it as a terrible failure that there was some we couldn't make every baby better but we could help every baby to to die and being at peace and pain free and being cuddled by the parents and supported and so that was also an, an enormous privilege and uh, you know and looking back now uh, after having done it for more than 25 years I must have cared over that time for probably many thousands of babies and yet the ones that stick out in my mind nearly all of them are babies who died as being a very special moment of sharing a moment of grief and and yet tenderness with 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 parents how did your faith play a part in those in those kind of moments yes well again it was something that it seemed to be very important that not just for those crisis moments but really for the whole of everyday work that i was trying as much as possible to to be aware of god's presence and, and to be working in in a prayerful way and you know i discovered that it was perfectly possible to be actually praying internally at the same time as talking to parents or to be examining an abdomen or uh, discussing a case and 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 so although very often you know I'm not, i don't want to sound like some kind of super spiritual person it was you know very often i failed in that but nonetheless there was a sense that actually god was there you know one of the things that i've learned is that the presence of god can be just as much in an intensive care unit or a hospital ward as it can be in a beautiful church um and and yes sometimes it was possible to share faith and um and sometimes it was just something that was internally i i was praying and and just trying to be the way i thought of it is that is that in these tragic moments we're just called to be the hands of jesus i, I can't necessarily be the lips of jesus i can't say anything but I can be there and I can try and show the love of Jesus in the way I respond, in the way I treat the baby, in the way I treat the parents. And that is just an extraordinary privilege. And, you know, as I look back on those special moments, um, I think, yes, it was painful. Yes, it, there were tears, but it was also an extraordinary privilege to be part of it. Mm. John, did you ever feel that that your faith was compromised in, in any moments at work, whether that was because things were so busy that you felt you couldn't devote the time that you wanted to to special cases or 
or because there was a dilemma where you felt, you know, one thing should be done, uh, but other doctors felt something else should be done and you felt compromised in that. Were there any situations like that 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 you came across? Yes, I mean, I think that the honest truth is that there are a number of many times uh, quite difficult things where you you know that, you know, you're being confronted with with challenging difficult problems certainly when you're a junior doctor you know you're not in a position to make decisions and you just have to in the end follow the decisions that the senior doctors are making and sometimes you know I felt deeply uncomfortable about some of the decisions and and felt I wouldn't have made that decision but you know as a junior doctor you you have to be you to try to to be um, faithful in, in, in what you're doing whilst recognizing the limitations and the challenges. And there are all kinds of challenges. And, and increasingly, although I went into pediatrics because and into the care of newborn babies, because I love children and because it was a, a very rewarding kind of medicine, increasingly, I realized I was in the midst of some kind of ethical uh, quagmire and, and or maelstrom of all kinds of ethical challenges going on and and i i knew that god had called me to be there and that i had to try and engage with with some of these ethical challenges so you know as the technology advanced we were we were getting better and better at keeping babies alive and the question was should you ever say enough is enough and and how do you decide when to do that and is it ever right to switch off the life support machinery? And and what happens if we can predict that a baby is going to have very severe brain damage? Um, how do we decide what what kind of treatment or whether it's ever right to withdraw um, life support treatment? So those those are agonising questions, and I and I really wrestled with trying to think it through. Uh, both as a doctor, but also as a Christian, uh, what what was the right way to think about this? And and then one of the really strange and and and, and, and difficult issues is that in the very same hospital where we were um, caring for some tiny, tiny little vulnerable babies born at twenty four weeks or even earlier, uh, one floor up in the same hospital. Um, is the fetal medicine unit where um, on a regular basis abortions are being carried out because of an abnormality of the baby, uh, uh, the unborn baby has been found. And because of the way the law works in the UK, it's actually legal for abortions to be carried out um, beyond 24 weeks of gestation, even in quite mature babies. And so uh, later on, when I was a consultant, quite often I was being called up to leave the neonatal unit where we were struggling to save for a whole series of tiny, tiny little babies, to go one floor up to the fetal medicine unit to talk to a mother who's considering having an abortion because of some problem with her baby. And the baby in her womb is considerably bigger and tougher and stronger than some of the babies which we were struggling to save one floor down and, and then you're trying to get your head round this really strange and, and, and troubling situation and, and asking 
you know, how do I respond in this situation? And what are my responsibilities? Mm. And, um, what did you and, feel, and what did you feel God's, God's speaking to you about in those times, John? How, how did God help you deal with some of those tricky discussions? Well, I mean, the, the conclusion I came to was that, uh, and, and, and this is a sort of a more general principle for when we, when we're um, we're working as Christians in a, in a kind of secular situation, it is to make the difference between what our desires are, what we would long to happen as individuals, and, and what our responsibilities are as professionals. And it's important that we keep these things different uh, we keep these things separate. They're both important, but they're not the same thing. So when I went to talk to a woman who was considering having an abortion because of a problem with her baby, my desire it would be that she would find the courage and the love to be able to care for her baby and continue the pregnancy, even if that meant the child was going to be severely disabled, because I genuinely believe that that is the best thing for the baby and it's the best thing for the mother. But I can't make that happen. So my duties, my responsibilities as a, as a doctor is to treat her with respect, with compassion, with understanding and empathy, to try to give her honest, accurate information, to help her see what the implications would be, how we would be able to care for the baby if she continued with the pregnancy and so on. And I feel if I've done that and done it well, then I fulfilled my responsibility. And even if then subsequently, the mother decides to go ahead and have an abortion, I feel sad, but I don't feel guilty. I, I because ultimately, I fulfilled um, the responsibility that I can have within this National Health Service where, I, where I'm working. And, um, but I do know that actually a, a number of, of women who following the conversation actually did decide to continue the pregnancy. And, and so I suppose at a human level, I'm actually responsible for the fact that a number of babies were born with quite significant um, disabilities and, and problems um, but I remain having uh, seen that and, and, and actually having cared for babies who then died after birth I'm, I remain absolutely convinced that however painful and strange that seems it's actually a better way to allow the pregnancy con to continue and for the mother to meet her baby after birth and to be able to care for the baby even if it means that the baby then dies after a few days or, or, or weeks or whatever. Mm. That's interesting because that's one of the big arguments, isn't it, about, you know, for abortion up until very late in the pregnancy that, you know, the, the trauma of, of, of the baby dying, et cetera, or having severe disabilities. But actually, you're, it seems to me that you're saying that, in fact, the mental health of the woman um is improved by by going through the process and having that um that opportunity to say goodbye i guess 
Yes, I mean, it sounds paradoxical. If you've never been in that situation, it, it would seem so obvious that in that terrible situation, doing an abortion kind of solves the problem. But the terrible truth is it doesn't solve the problem. Um, but what the difference in the experience is that if somebody has had an abortion in these tragic circumstances, even if it's quite late in the pregnancy, the natural instincts are to try to keep everything quiet. You know, it's not something you want to broadcast. It's not something you want to tell everybody. You know, and quite often people will 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 keep it quite quite private. And if someone said, "Well, that's strange because you were you were pregnant," um, you know, last month, and you're not pregnant now, what happened? And they ask, "Well, I can't talk about it. Please, let's change the subject." It's a kind of something which often the instinct is to try and quite keep it quiet whereas once a baby is born even if that baby only lives for minutes or hours it becomes a kind of public phenomenon you know so everybody knows the extended family come along there are photographs there are footprints taken you know there's, there's maybe a, some kind of memorial or celebration service or baptism is carried out, um, family, friends, the grandparents come, other people know. And so, yes, there's terrible sadness and loss, but it's done in the context of, the, of a very social and supportive environment. And of course, that carries on. So, you know, cards come and, and, and memories and... Um, and and so there's a whole supportive environment around the parents and having witnessed that so many times yes it's painful but it just seems to me a better way you spent 25 years in this role um but you you did move out of medicine didn't you, you moved into a more or a sort of research role tell me a bit about uh what led you to leave frontline medicine yes it was um I mean, I was under extraordinary pressure because not only was I, I became the most senior consultant, uh, you know, as I, I, on the unit and my special areas of interest was one brain damaged in babies and two ethical problems and challenges. And so I accumulated some of the most um, desperately difficult um, cases and, and challenges. And I was trying to be the rock and trying to be um holding it all together and um at the same time i was leading a big international research project where we were trying a new doing a clinical trial uh, testing out and developing a new treatment for babies who'd been at risk of brain damage uh, at birth and so uh i was aware that i was under enormous strain and and then i started having some real uh, stress and mental health difficulties and um, it was like a wake-up call that I realized that I couldn't carry on indefinitely in this role and so uh, I moved sideways uh, away from the clinical front line and was concentrating much more on uh, ethical issues um, and writing and teaching about ethics and also some of the academic and research issues and and to be honest, that was that was a bit of a relief. Having done it for 20, 25 years, I had a, a sort of strong feeling that I needed to pass this on 
to other people it was taking so much of a toll on my own mm. on my own physical and mental health i'm megan cornwell and you're listening to the profile on premier christian radio my guest is dr john wyatt who is also the host of a brand new podcast from premier matters of life and death this podcast delves into issues around healthcare ethics technology science and faith and it provides helpful advice for Christians wanting to engage with the big questions of life, death and everything in between. We'll be back with more from John right after this. Do you feel inner conflict between truth and lies, the way of Christianity and the way of the world? If so, it's time to live no lies. With huge spiritual insight, New York Times bestseller John Mark Comer guides us into recognizing and resisting the lies that rob us of peace and freedom. Live No Lies, yours free when you take out an annual subscription to Premier Christianity magazine. Subscribe at premierchristianity.com. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. I'm speaking to John Wyatt, a Christian doctor and co-host of a brand new Premier podcast called Matters of Life and Death. In part two of this interview, Dr Wyatt explains how his pioneering research helped many newborn babies thrive and why Christians should take robotics and artificial intelligence more seriously. So actually it was mainly for, for babies born at term, but who then suffered birth uh, problems at birth so it's about one in a thousand or two in a thousand births where a baby has been everything's been going fine and then catastrophe strikes often in labor and the baby gets stuck or there's a problem with the placenta or the or the womb can actually rupture and um, in this situation the baby is exposed to very very severe oxygen deprivation and that can either lead to death uh, or to survival with very severe um, problems. And so we were seeing babies like this on a, on a regular basis, sometimes born in our own hospital, often born in other hospitals, but then referred after birth to us. And it was tragic to see this wonderful big baby who's done so well for nine months and then catastrophe has struck. And struck. And following up these children in the outpatient clinic, often it was very, very tragic to see them. Often these children were in severe damage within a, in the wheelchair with severe cerebral palsy, often with blindness and with epilepsy and with learning difficulties. And the whole life and the f life of the family had been damaged. And I was part of a research team who was trying to understand what was going on in the brain in these particular cases. And what we've shown is that much to our surprise, when the brain got short of oxygen, it, it used to be thought that when the brain was short of oxygen, the damage happens instantaneously. There was nothing that could be done. And much to our surprise, what was emerging from our research and from research of some other people around the world was that actually the damage didn't happen instantaneously. A lot of the damage happened over the following 48 hours after the baby was resuscitated after birth and that what seemed to happen was the shortage of oxygen triggered off a whole cascade of damaging chemical reactions in the brain and that was what was doing the damage 
So I, I was then part of some experiments to try to see could we reproduce this in the laboratory and could we work out whether how to stop these damaging reactions and we tried various different things and I was very interested in the possibility that cooling the brain might actually uh, switch off some of these damaging reactions and there have always been cases of um, babies born um, outdoors who got incredibly cold sometimes trapped in snow drifts um, and astonishingly um, they've done very very well and I've actually was involved in in two cases where babies after birth got extremely cold and we thought they would be damaged and to our utter astonishment they survived and did extremely well and um, and so we showed that actually just reducing the brain temperature by three or four degrees seemed to be very powerful in switching off the damaging reactions. And so the question is, would we dare to do this in a baby? Because what all the textbooks said is that the most important thing is a baby is you had to keep them warm. <laughs> I know. I remember when mine were born and they were saying, oh, she's a little bit cold. Quick, get the blankets, get the blankets, put up the rain, turn up the heat. <laughs> Absolutely. And every and we've been going on, paediatricians have been banging on at this for decades. And the textbook said, if babies get cold, all these terrible things happen. And they build up of acid in the bloodstream and the blood clotting goes haywire and the bowel is damaged and the lungs don't work properly. And and so I was we were really wrestling with this. And, and yet, on the other hand, the cooling seemed to be quite good for the brain, but it might be very bad for the rest of the body. So in the end, um, we developed the idea of a cooling cap which we would put on the baby's head to try and reduce the brain temperature while we would try and keep the rest of the body, body as warm as possible. And um, so I was then part of a uh, an, an international trial where we, we, we did some pilot studies, which the babies did very well. And then now was we had to do one of these clinical trials. And so of course in the pandemic, we're now all much better informed about clinical trials, but, um, and about a randomized trial and so that we did a randomized trial we we took we had to have 230 babies all at risk of severe brain damage and we were going to take half of them and give them the cooling treatment and the other half we would just give the standard intensive care and then we were going to follow them up all the way for 18 months to see whether or not they survived and whether they had evidence of cerebral palsy and, and brain damage and uh, in order to do that, we had to have, I think, about 20, 25 hospitals around the world all collaborating. And um, because the other thing that we knew is that we had to start the cooling treatment as soon as possible after birth. The longer every hour that went by before you started the cooling, you basically missed the boat. And so it was an extraordinary logistical business. In fact, I can remember at the time there was a baby born with had difficulties in a hospital in North London. And I can remember going in the back of the ambulance with the blue lights flashing to try and get to this baby fast enough and get the baby back to UCH in the center so that we could get to the schooling started before six hours. So it was all, we were all watching the clock. And um, anyway, to cut a very long story short, this trial to my utter amazement showed that it worked. 
and that the babies who had the cooling, there was significantly less death and significantly less cerebral palsy and brain damage. And um, so we, we wrote that up. There were other trials that looked at the same thing. And now it's uh, become standard treatment around the world that babies who are have this problem should receive cooling treatment. So it was utterly extraordinary to see it go from this mad idea with everybody shaking their head and saying, you've got to be joking, to now it's standard treatment. Goodness me, that must be, uh, must fill you with a real sense of achievement and pride to have been part of that. Yes, it does. But, you know, as a Christian, when I look back and I just say, actually, it wasn't because, you know, we were much more, much more better trained or more clever or more creative than anybody else. It just, it did feel, it was almost like it was something that God had just been there and and divinely inspired yes it was it was it was it just seemed extraordinary a sort of a, a whole serendipity you know a whole lot of chance coincidences i remember chance conversation with somebody else i happened to say oh i'm quite interested in cooling and she was a doctor from another specialist from another country from norway and she said oh you're interested in cooling. i'm interested in cooling. why don't we collaborate you know and so you know that, that was things like that so um yeah it was it was an extraordinary time um, but it just a sense again that god was in this in some way and it it, it has it is a, a wonderful adventure but i have to say there was a huge amount of stress at the time and um, and we genuinely didn't know whether it was going to work and one of my nightmares was that actually it would turn out that the babies who got cooled had more problems and more brain damage and more death than the ones who hadn't which in which case you know i also knew there was quite a lot of interest from the media and so on and i, I used to lie in bed and, and imagine these banner headlines that said something like babies die in failed hospital experiments and <laughs> senior investigator suspended you know <laughs> inquiries being carried out so one of the sad things about the way that the media works is you're either a hero you know because you're saving lives or else you're this terrible evil person who's who's doing terrible things to babies and it's it's like you can't be it somewhere between those two yes and it's a lot of pressure on your shoulders well talking of pressure that brings me to my next question about what the nhs is going through at the moment so i mean we know that it's under huge pressure um you know covid has, has been a massive strain i mean it's unlike anything we've ever experienced before what are you hearing from from the doctors in your networks john about the sorts of challenges yes well it has been an extraordinary experience because um when the um the first uh, lockdown happened and and uh, i remember vividly those times when we were all wondering what on earth is going to happen and um, because of my links with many doctors and Christ through the christian medical fellowship and and other other links I was aware of quite a lot of young medical students and uh, junior doctors who were suddenly being pitchforked into the most astonishing uh, situations. Um, and a lot of finally year medical students who were anticipating that they got another year of working on the wards and then taking their finals exams, they suddenly got a letter saying, you are now a qualified doctor and you report for duty on the intensive care unit on Monday. And um, and they were suddenly pitchforked into this extraordinary situation of, and and so 
and many of them you know really struggled because uh they were completely unprepared for uh, the kind of responsibilities they were covering and in particular the emotional problems because of course they were often there uh with the full ppe watching people die in the intensive care unit trying to communicate with uh loved ones who couldn't even visit and and having conversations on by telephone and so on and and somehow trying to trying to do the right thing so there there were enormous uh, psychological pressures, particularly on the junior doctors uh, and nursing staff and so on. Um, and I think what's happened now is, is that it's gone from the acute crisis into a sort of very long term, just continual um, pressure. And um, there's a there's a lot of burnout, a lot of um people struggling with stress and depression anxiety um it really is taking its toll on on many of the um of the hospital staff um seniors as well as as juniors and one of the things that makes it so hard and particularly again at certain phases when there's been a lot of media publicity saying oh it's just a scam and it's, it's not true and the hospitals are actually empty and all this is being invented, you know, and, and there were people going to the hospitals and taking photographs of empty corridors and saying, look, we show you. So when you're absolutely under terrible pressure and watching people die in the ITU and then you come out and you then you read this stuff, um, it's, it's really quite, quite hard to, to take psychologically and, and very frustrating. Uh, when you see so much misinformation and um and just frank lies being told about mm -hmm. what the actual situation is yes i can't imagine how difficult that must be and and i mean i'm amazed to see during this pandemic the the amount of misinformation and the amount of people who believe it you know people that you think of as being relatively sensible people in your own family you know you think come on, like go to, go to the source, you know, go to the, go to the reliable media sources. Cause you know, you talk about the media there, John, but obviously that's, that's for the most part, uh, not mainstream media. Yes. And, and so one of the fascinating and really troubling things about this pan pandemic is that it's like there have been two related pandemics at this, at, at one level, there's a, there's a physical virus which has been multiplying and replicating and spreading and mutating and spreading across from bodies around the world. But at the same time, there's what some people have called an infodemic, a pandemic of misinformation. And, and interestingly, that also is doing the same thing. It's starting and multiplying and spreading and mutating. Uh, and appearing. And I think it's turning out that actually, paradoxically, it's easier to control and deal with the physical virus than it is to deal with the misinformation. And there seem to be many people who are so uh, vulnerable to misinformation and so suspicious of official um, official uh, channels, including doctors, scientists, um, official news media and all the rest, um, they much prefer to believe some scurrilous 
disinformation which is being circulating around on social media and I do find that very very troubling because if we cannot agree what is true then it's almost like the very foundations of our democracy uh, start to crumble and I think trying to educate people about about the nature of science about the nature of you know how this how the scientific process works and it is very hard to understand because the amount of scientific openness that there's been during the pandemic has been completely unique i mean it's much been so much better than anything that's happened before what happened is that very rapidly the doctors and scientists working in the area realized that this was what someone called an existential threat this was something that was potentially going to devastate and cause millions of death around the world as indeed it has done but as a result they all started collaborating together so the sworn enemies and competitors of different research groups and different commercial organizations all agreed to collaborate and share their information and to make it available on open access so all the information has been available um, on open access and um, there have been hundreds and hundreds of scientific papers just constantly coming out. And, you know, as science works, something comes out and then someone says, hang on a minute, I found something different. And then we say, well, there's another one. And, but but um, the, the whole the scientific openness and the scientific collaboration has been extraordinary. Um, so then it becomes so hard to understand that with that level of openness and that that there's the large numbers of scientists around the world who are all participating in it, it's hard to understand why such levels of suspicion um, are, are there. Particularly as it's often the same people who are making a fuss because I can't have the latest treatment for cancer. Uh, you know, and I insist on why isn't the NHS providing this latest drug which has been shown to extend life in in cancer or some particular forms of cancer and yet this kind of double thing because it's exactly the same doctors and exactly the same clinical trials which have been showing these treatments which have been so effective for cancer and yet it's like we can trust doctors when they're talking about cancer but we absolutely can't trust them when those same doctors are now saying there's a virus which needs to be uh, and and that we've now got a vaccine which actually works and which and which helps and it's that kind of very strange uh, double think, which is, is hard to understand. Yeah. Well, it's a bit like when the, um, the anti-vax, uh, the anti-vaxxers end up in hospital and then they're saying, you know, I just, I just so wish I'd had the, the vaccine. And then by that point it's too late. You know, we, we were yeah. hearing quite a few of those stories, weren't we? Um, in, in, the, in the recent months, um, very sad stories of people who shunned the vaccine because they, believed these things that they were that they were reading and then you know it was too late for them because they caught the virus and they fell very unwell yes and there is something very un, unusual and interesting about the internet and that is that it's been shown that stories which are fundamentally false uh spread much more rapidly and much more quickly than stories that are true and um there's, there's some quite a lot of scientific evidence demonstrating that. And if you think about it, you know, it's, you can see why that happens. So a news story that says, um, 
vaccines are working well and the number of complications is small versus a news story that says shock horror you know vaccines cause infertility or um or whatever which which is the story that people are going to click on and, and then share, and, share yeah. and all the rest That's and so the key, isn't it sharing you know, that so that it's and and because the way the algorithms work is they're actually designed to to spot what people are clicking on and then feed more of those stories and so it does seem like the whole uh, in uh, of this infrastructure of, of social media and the internet is almost calculated to spread disinformation and and um and and, and frankly just falsehoods and lies well, that brings us quite nicely to talking a little bit about your book, John, and, and your research into artificial intelligence. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I've um, always been interested in how as technology advances, it sort of raises a question again, you know, what does it mean to be human? And uh, what does it mean to be human if um, we can keep you alive at 23 weeks of gestation? Or what does it mean to be human if You've got such severe brain damage that you're in a persistent vegetative state. Um, and I see artificial intelligence as almost like the next big challenge, the next big question. What does it mean to be human if we can make a machine which seems to be as intelligent and as compassionate as, as a human being? And is there any difference between a human being and an intelligent computer? Are we just all computers made out of meat, as one uh, uh, roboticist uh, used to say? So um, they're pretty convincing in Blade Runner, aren't they? <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, one of the fascinating things about all this is that science fiction writers have been writing about this theme for actually more than a hundred years. I mean, it goes all the way back to Mary Shelley and Frankenstein and H.G. Wells and um, so there have been um, science fiction has has raised all these kind of issues. And one of the things that I've sort of realized, and that is that most of the technologists who are leading, actually working on this, they're all science fiction nuts. They've all, <laughs> they've all imbibed all the science fiction stories right from childhood. And now what they're trying to do is they're trying to make the science fiction come true. And there's many examples where actually the way that this technology has been developed has been precisely because of the science fiction. And I, I, I could give you a number of examples, but just one of them that comes to mind, and that is, do you know why Alexa, you know, the um, Amazon Alexa, has a particular kind of voice? Do you know what that voice is modelled on? No. It's modelled on the computer in Star Trek. Oh, really? So, you know, this calm female voice. So whenever it's all, everything is going wrong, you know, that calm female voice is still in control. The, so Alexa is, has exactly that same voice. And that's just one example about how um, the technologists are trying to make the um, science fiction come true. So, something which is quite scary is that there are science fiction novels by Ian Banks, well-known um, science fiction writer who, who's now sadly passed away, but he came up with the idea of what he called neural lace, which was wiring, which was fitted underneath the skull, uh, which would allow you to then be connected to computers. Mm. And so he wrote Sounds about familiar. <laughs> he 
his neural lace. And lo and behold, Elon Musk, Musk yeah. Yeah, having read this, says, I'm going to make this come true. And I've got billions of dollars and I'm going to invest in it. And so, it, you know, it, it is interesting how this... It is very interesting, isn't it? I've actually just finished reading Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood. I don't know if you've right. read that one, but yeah. that was fascinating. And that's got a lot of Christian kind of imagery around... Um, Adam and Eve and building a paradise and but it's also very very dark dystopian kind of vision of the future so yes it it is all a little bit frightening when you start to sort of take these these things to their logical conclusions and you start to see the the uh, ethical implications of them and I think that's really where you know what what you're doing John is quite unique and really helpful because I don't think that many people are looking at, at the ethical implications of of some of these technologies. Well certainly not within the Christian world. There, there are quite a lot of people in the secular world who are increasingly engaging with, with this and setting up think tanks and so on. But I've found it quite frustrating and trying to persuade some Christian theologians and scholars, you know, that this is an important point. Actually it was quite difficult. I mean interestingly I think most people who, who become theologians or church leaders, you know, they didn't study science. They gave it all up fairly, fairly young. They, they studied humanities. They're not interested in science. They don't read science fiction. So they just find the whole thing, oh, it's just all rubbish. You know, I'm not interested. Um, where, which I think is a mistake because actually I do think this is, that there is a real threat. And paradoxically, I'm less worried about sort of lethal autonomous weapons and so-called so-called killer robots, although that's real and, and is a threat. I find what's most scary are intelligent computers that can simulate compassion and and all the most human characteristics of of um, communication and empathy and emotional intelligence and so on, because the ability to simulate uh, uh, to such an extent that you you can't tell the difference is 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 something that I find very troubling, and it's happening. You know, people are, um, for instance, there are uh, programs and websites where you can feed in all the texts and emails that you've ever done in your life, and then after you die, you will carry on sending texts and emails quotes the program will um, and people are saying you know this is wonderful it helps me to carry on a relationship with my close friend who died and it's helping me in the grieving process and anything you know what is going on here when you can uh, simulate um a human identity a human person and yet it's just clever programming mm. Well, it's funny you talk about that because we we've literally just covered that that um, that issue in the in the February edition of Premier Christianity magazine. We've got a, fa a fascinating article on um, these these AI bots that that are providing. Well, it was it was specifically about someone who died, and they were this this grieving um, boyfriend was able to continue the relationship with the girlfriend. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. I, I could talk to you for uh, hours, John, but we are coming towards the end of um, of the show. So can I just ask you in, the, in these last couple of minutes, can you just give us some pointers as to what Christians, what, what we can we be praying for in terms of the big kind of issues that are affecting Christian medics? Yes, I, I think um, 
I think prayer is is really important, and I and I think I think we can pray particularly for the next generation. You know, I feel now my main responsibility is to try to encourage the next generation. I've just come back from a conference, the Christian Medical Fellowship, where I, there were I think nearly four hundred Christian medical students, and you know they're all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and they're all you know wanting to be to serve God and so on but and and trying to I think pray for these people who are going on to medicine they they are the ones who are going to face many of these new ethical challenges and and, and we need the next generation of of people both medics and nurses and technologists scientists who will really engage and practice this double listening you know with a desire both to be faithful to to god and to and to the christian faith and at the same time uh, really engage and be relevant with with the big challenges that are coming up and and you know i'm i'm not pessimistic i i think so often what we find is that's precisely when those big challenges come that we see the power and the truth of Christianity, and um, I, I think pray that God would raise up more people who will really see this as important and, and want to engage in it, in the name of Christ. Well, John, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all of your experiences and insight. No, thank you. It's been great uh, to have the conversation. I hope you enjoyed listening to this interview. For hundreds more conversations just like it you can download the profile as a podcast. Just search for the profile wherever you usually get your podcasts or visit premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.